Hello and welcome to My Camino, the podcast. A weekly discussion about the Camino de Santiago, the many and varied paths leading to the remains of St. James in the Grand Cathedral in Santiago de Compostela in northwest Spain. You walk the Camino as a pilgrim, and you remain a pilgrim for the rest of your life. Indeed, our lives are pilgrimages, and the Camino helps us to find space and time in our lives. It's one of the great pleasures of a pilgrim's journey. If you're planning on walking or have walked before, you no doubt would have stumbled across the writings of Johnny Walker Santiago. He's a blogger, he writes guides, lives in Santiago, is a musician, and he gave up, I'm told, a long-held career to lead a different way of life. To mark the change, he walked one of the pilgrimage routes to Santiago and has been walking ever since. Johnny Walker, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. Good morning from Santiago, and I think good afternoon there in Australia, Dan. It is indeed good afternoon in Australia. It's great to talk to you. Can I begin, Johnny, by asking when you walked your first Camino, and do you remember what motivated you to take off? Uh, My first Camino was exactly 10 years ago this year. I had been a great walker and outdoor person when I was young in Scotland, as you can hear, I'm, I'm Scottish and I walked the, the hills of Scotland, but I hadn't done any walking for a very, very long time until I was introduced to the community of Santiago and made that first Camino from Seville. Actually, I set out on the 2nd of January and 36 days later, I reached Santiago um, on the Via de la Plata and everything had changed by that point. But we'll We'll come to that, I'm sure. Do you remember what motivated you? Well, uh, some years before, I was trying to think about this, maybe four or five years before I um, I packed my rucksack and, and set off following the Yellow Arrows, um, I had been invited to dinner at, um, at, the, at the chairman of the board's house. I was the chief executive of a large organisation and I was invited to dinner. Um, by the chairman and I got to his house and he said to me, sounds very posh, he said, whilst uh, Jenny's attending to dinner, come into the drawing room till I show you what she's been up to. And there on the wall in this lovely room was a map of what I now know to be the Camino Frances. And this line was going across the top of Spain and ended at a place called Santiago de Compostela. I suppose somewhere along the line, I had heard of St. James. I don't think I'd heard of Santiago de Compostela, and I'd certainly never heard of the Camino to Santiago. Well, over dinner that night, Jenny told me that she was doing this thing called the Camino in Stages, and she told me about albergues. She told me about the blisters that pilgrims got. And this the seed was sown, and thereafter... I did a little bit of internet research and then I did a bit more and then I became obsessed with finding out about this. And I wanted to make some, over that time, I I wanted to make some fundamental changes in my life. I'd always made myself the promise for a very, very long time that if ever I got to the stage in life where I had enough money to satisfy my needs, if not all of my wants and desires, if I had enough cash, to survive, then I would make a change. I would, I would stop doing, I had been doing very difficult jobs over a long period of time, that I would give that up and, and pursue something else. And I decided it was time. 
and but I couldn't I didn't have the courage to do it because it was such a major change and so I thought the, the idea emerged that I should walk a Camino to Santiago and that's what I did 10 years ago and by the time I reached Santiago I had I had realized certain things I'd realized that physically I could still do it I realized that it was a wonderful experience I never met any pilgrims. It was January, early January in wintertime. I never met anybody else for three weeks. I had very little Spanish. I was going into places and with a phrase book, writing down, um, do you have a room, please? And showing them this in my in my, my, my pigeon Spanish. Um, and so I made my way, but but on the Via de la Plata, when I, when I got further up beyond Salamanca and so forth, I, I began to meet other pilgrims and... The local people had been fantastic. And then I was introduced to this pilgrim world and all these people walking to the same place that I had, I was walking to and, and all the people that had gone before. And I just, I, just, I just was taken by the whole thing. Above everything, I suppose, was the feeling, the realisation that there I was with my rucksack and I was making my way and I was, I was very happy. And I realised that if all of my anxieties came true, if I woke up and there was no money in the bank, and if I woke up and the people who loved me didn't love me anymore, and if I woke up and I had no house to live in, if everything in my life came to an end, I could survive simply with the stuff in my rucksack and I could make my way forward. And I found that extremely empowering, um, a very, very powerful experience. So and you, that's what started it all. That's a great, that's a great yarn. Just a little bit of homework, I suppose. First of all, then, Johnny, how many Caminos would you say now you have walked? Ah, <laughs> well, perhaps I have an addictive personality, but it was such a powerful experience. Um, I then walked, I read about the Camino Inglés, um, which the, the Northern European, including English and Irish, and I suppose Scottish pilgrims, walked when they arrived by boat to Coruña. Uh, on the northwest coast of Spain. So yeah. I decided to walk the, the Camino Inglés. The, the, there were very few arrows, and really a guidebook was badly needed. And so I thought I would write a guidebook in English to that route. And that got that that just deepened uh, the desire to walk more and more. So I walked two or three Caminos every year. Um, so that's 10 years, so I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 different different routes. I've walked walked in Italy, I've walked from Florence to Rome. Um, two or three years ago, I walked the 88 Temple pilgrimage course, route. Yeah. Yeah. About 1,200 kilometres. Um, 88 Buddhist temples um, in, around the circumference of the smallest Japanese island, the island of Shikoku. Um, and that was truly a wonderful experience. Um, so walking seems to be in my genes. And Johnny Walker's not my real name, of course. That's my that's my pen name. But it seemed very appropriate for a Scotsman yeah. who likes a drama every now and again and enjoys walking. So that's where the the name Johnny Walker was born. Exactly. Well, you've answered a question I had written in for later. But we're going to talk about your guidebooks in a moment. Are you walking these days for pleasure, as well as as compiling the guidebooks? Is there still a deal of pleasure in walking for you? Well, it's always for pleasure. Um, I decided that I would I would write guidebooks and update guidebooks for the Confraternity of St James, the UK-based 
the oldest English language organization and that they would get all of the royalties and all of the profits. So I do it for pleasure and they, they can raise some funds and it's a great arrangement. Um, so I still very, very much walk for pleasure and exploring a new route, for example, just two weeks ago, I was on with a friend, I was on the, uh, the Camino Portugues coastal route because people get very confused about that route. And, and I've now written um, the, the first detailed walking notes, a detailed walking guide to the Portuguese coastal route and the seaside route, the two routes together, all the way to Santiago. And that will be published in a, in a few weeks' time. How lovely. And that's, that, was a huge, that was a huge pleasure. Walking every day with, with the, the waves of the Atlantic Ocean crashing on the beach beside where the Camino uh, the Camino goes through Portugal and into Spain. Lovely. Absolutely. Well, you're clearly enveloped in your Camino life. Uh, is it fair to say that you're surprised at the path your life surprised has taken? By... Ah. Well, I've just kind of gone along with um, to tell you the honest truth. Yeah. After, after a wee while of coming to Santiago, walking the Camino Inglés, and then I went back to the Via de la Plata, I'd read in my guidebook that in certain stretches in the, on the Via de la Plata, um, in springtime there are wildflowers as far as the eye can see. And, of course, I walked in wintertime. So I went back the following spring, and sure enough, there were wildflowers as far as the eye could see. So I was coming to Santiago, and and, and then um, I asked if I asked the cathedral if I could do some voluntary work just to meet, meet with and be with other pilgrims in the pilgrim's office. So I started writing the uh, the Compostelas when the pilgrims arrived and chatting to the pilgrims. And I loved that. I was the only volunteer there in the office. And um, I started coming out to Santiago very, very regularly, kind of like a week a month. Um, I was here and one of the lads in the office, Danny, Danny Vargas, who's now my best friend in Santiago, said to me, um, John, in our family, we've got an apartment that we don't use, and you, you're very, you're staying in hotels and hostels. You're very welcome to use this place. So I arranged to meet him at the apartment, and down I went in this kind of nondescript building, 1960s concrete, horrible building. Oh, about only about seven or ten minutes from the cathedral. Well, we went up in the lift, and I thought at least it's got a lift. And we come out on the fourth floor, and he opened the door, and here was this apartment that was like the Marie Celeste, and. <laughs> What had happened was his partner, uh, Raquel, her grandmother had died and her mother inherited the apartment. Her mother totally refurbished this apartment, completely furnished it with new stuff from top to bottom. And then sadly, her mother died. No. Um, and her mother's cigarettes, her mother's cigarettes and lighter actually were still sitting on the table. And they'd just gone out and locked the door, basically. And I was faced with this three-bedroom, two-bathroom <clears throat> excuse me, three bedroom, two bathroom, wooden floors, carpets, couches, seats, with views of the cathedral spires. And Danny said, well, here you are. And they handed me the keys. And I thought, well, all the arrows are just pointing in one direction here. Um, so I, I came to a rental arrangement with them and I came out and I gradually brought some clothes. But that gave me the incentive to make the big move. And I rented my house in London and... Um, 10 years ago, um, started living in Santiago most of the time. And then five years ago, six, six years ago, I think, I moved here completely. So 
That's the story. Well, I, I, I think it's fair to say you're surprised at the path your life took then. So, you, well, you, but it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that, that you found something looking on the wall of that, of that den all those years ago and, and here you are. It's not that long. I mean, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it is now, is, is not that long. But it's just, it's, you're living and breathing it every minute of every day. It takes me to my next question, that you've been a member of the Camino Forum for more than 10 years and have posted almost 4,000 messengers. The, the forum's a huge part of the continued popularity of the Caminos. And I've said before, it's not like other global hosp- uh, holiday destinations. Pilgrims seek continued engagement on their return home. Why is that, do you think? Why do we remain so tied to our pilgrimage when we come home? Well, this is something I'm very, very interested in, Dan. And, and <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and we don't know. We don't know what makes people come back and come back and come back. I think it's something to do with our personalities, but I think it's also to do with this very powerful experience of walking the Camino, of, of walking through Spain, of being with other pilgrims, and of course, eventually. Um, of reaching Santiago, and we talk about it and we think about it. And what do you do when your partner or your family are fed up listening to you talking about the Camino to Santiago? And you take to Facebook and the Camino Forum and where you can get fellowship. Um, At one point in the Camino Forum, we described it as being like an albergue where you meet strangers and you can have a chat and you can go over the experience and answer questions of, of new people who who are at the stage that I was at, whatever, 14 or 15 years ago, of beginning to research the idea, learning about the concept um, and gradually making the decision to do it. So I think it's a combination of all of these things. And yet pilgrims talk about the spirit and energy of the Camino itself. How do you explain it to people who haven't walked who or who are considering walking? Rebecca well, Scott called it the juju. Um, I, think, I think that's right. There is a, there is a kind of um, a mysterious quality to it. I think there's a mystical quality to the experience of the Camino, and I think it's to do with the common bond which exists between pilgrims. I think it's to do with the way in which pilgrims share with each other, often deeply personal experiences. I think it's to do with the meditative effects of the Camino. I love walking the Meseta, for example, not just in the Camino Frances, but the wide open spaces on the Camino Levante, on the Via de la Plata, where you're on your own, just like a speck of dust, walking along the seemingly endless path. And it's I, I describe it as it's like brainwashing in the best sense. Um, you cannot, you don't, you just, if you stop thinking about the mundane and ordinary things of life, um, my brain empties completely. And of course, I think about myself and I think about my future and I, and I think about my past. And all of that, I believe, is beneficial. And taking all of that together, um, it's a powerful mystical experience, and I know that people do become addicted to it and want to top up and want to keep coming back. And um, it'd be very interesting to see some research at some point to see the the number of pilgrims and the percentage of pilgrims who come back to do second and third and fourth uh, pilgrimages. But that's for the future. Oh, that's an outstanding answer. Uh, I I think you've summed it up perfectly. 
um, and possibly you've made sense for me of some of the things that I've been thinking and wondering about. So I appreciate that. Let's go to the day job, in a sense. Uh, let's talk about the confraternity of St. James. Tell us about it. Yeah. What do you do and what does it do? The confraternity of St. James is over 30 years old. 30 years ago, there were no pilgrim organisations. There were, there were few pilgrims walking to Santiago, remember? In these days, I, I don't know, hundreds of pilgrims rather than thousands of pilgrims arrived in Santiago and two or three people who had had the experience, decided to start an organisation in the United Kingdom to tell others about the Camino, to promote the Camino, and to have that kind of experience that we've just been talking about, yeah. where they could come together and talk about their Caminos and their future plans and so forth. And from very small beginnings, the organisation has grown um, and now has two or 3,000 members. Uh, we continue to provide... Um, Lots of services for pilgrims. One of the early and wisest decisions was to have practical pilgrim days to invite people who wanted to go in Camino to come together and members of the confraternity who have got experience turn up with their rucksacks. They show people what is in their rucksack. They talk to them about guidebooks. They, they share the experience of sleeping in albergues and how you find a bed. And the practical pilgrim days are very uh, popular Indeed. And one of the early decisions of the confraternity was to provide guidebooks in English. Remember, there were no guidebooks. John Briarley had not walked a Camino, hadn't decided to make that his career. So the, the confraternity started, the members started going on Caminos and writing guidebooks, which have got a very distinctive style. They are literally walk 100 yards and turn left at house number six, yeah. uh, then go straight go straight ahead to the oak tree and turn right. Um, so it's very specific, um, helpful walking directions. Um, and I, I got involved with that, and there's been a great tradition of that, um, of writing guidebooks, especially to open up new routes and lesser-known routes. And the confraternity operates a number of albergues, does it not? We have two, the Confraternity of St. James in the UK has two albergues, um, one at Rabanal del Camino on the Camino Frances. It, it, the, that was opened by a few volunteers who, who physically themselves renovated this old building. And in 1991, um, they opened it. There had been no proper accommodation for pilgrims on a very exposed and rugged stretch, 54 kilometres between Astoria and Ponferrada. And so the confraternity opened the albergue there. And then five years ago, I think, five or six years ago, uh, we opened the albergue San Martin in uh, an albergue for peregrinos at Mirath on the Camino del Norte, 14 kilometres after Bamondi. Um, and we, this, the, the, these are donativo albergues. Um, the concept was that the communities and that the, the confraternity is still committed to is to keep the tradition of donativo albergues alive. And so we have volunteers who work for nothing, and the place the place exists through the donations which pilgrims give um, for having a bed, a warm shower. Um, a cup of tea and some fellowship. And uh, being a British organisation, I was lucky enough to be in Ravenel del Camino, and stayed at Refugio Gorkelmo for an. And you have the afternoon tea, the English afternoon tea. Tell us about that yes. tradition. 
Well, <laughs> it's fantastic. You need to remember, I'm you need to remember I'm Scottish. <laughs> in Scotland, people go to the pub. In England, they have they have afternoon tea. Um, I'm, I'm only slightly joking about that. The tradition of afternoon tea, yes, around three or four o'clock, in most English houses, things would stop for a cup of tea and some biscuits. And that tradition has continued um, in the albergi uh, at at uh, at Rabinal, the albergi Refugio Gautelmo. And every afternoon they serve tea and biscuits for the pilgrims. And it's a great English tradition that's carried out, and the pilgrims love it, of course. Do you have enough? And if we've even got if we if we've even got Australians engaging in the sophisticated practice <laughs> of afternoon tea, then it just shows you. So I'm glad you enjoyed it, Dan. <laughs> I did. Well, actually, I was absolutely delighted. There was a young Canadian uh, hospitalera there, and uh, someone had snuck her a Tim Tam, a little chocolate biscuit from Australia, and she snuck it into my palm and made my day. Uh-huh. Absolutely made my day. <laughs> I've, I've got a great photograph of, of the handover, and, and, and a few of the, the local monks were there. They couldn't understand what all the fuss was about, and so we had to give one of them one yes. of the biscuits to try, and he, he understood what all the fuss was uh-huh. about. So, do you have enough volunteers to 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 staff the, the albergues? Well, I think I think the, the, the confraternity does very well. These two albergues are well known and popular. I think we need. I think we do need to recruit more uh, more volunteer um, hospitaleros for Mirath, and and particularly um, people who have skills in. Spanish and who can answer the telephone when pilgrims phone up to make inquiries and so forth. So, yes, the website www.csj.org.uk has got all of the information. People who are interested in becoming hospitaleros, there's a training course. The confraternity brings prospective hospitaleros together. Um, and even if there's not a place available, you know, when, when you want in that two weeks in July, then on the waiting list um, for the future. So plenty of information there if people want to be want to volunteer to help. And I'll give that that uh, website address at the end of the interview as well. Again, Johnny, if someone's listening and they're interested in learning more, as I said, I'll, I'll give the the website address at the end. But the confraternity released this year a series of guidebooks. There's a pilgrim's guide yes. to Santiago de Compostela. Do pilgrims make the most of the city because we arrive? It's the big event. Then we check in somewhere. We generally put our feet up, have a bit of a shower and scrub up. Do we then make the most of the city? Um, well, the, the reason that I wrote the Pilgrim Guide to Santiago, which also has 20 suggestions of things to do and things to see in the city, and I devised a, a route of routes. So I've devised a walking route in and around and just outside the city, uh, which takes, say, for example, you've got friends or somebody coming out from Australia to meet you um, here in Santiago to give them a taste of following the Yellow Arrows. So the route of routes uh, touches on the five main routes as they enter the city through where the old city gates would have been when it was a walled city. And in that guide, we also list all of the pilgrim accommodation and so forth. And I wrote it because of my own experience. Pilgrims arrive, they want to have a shower, they want to have something to eat, and meet their friends and have a celebration of their arrival and maybe go to the cathedral and one or two other things. But Santiago, of course, is very rich 
and things to do. And so there's now a guidebook that they can have on their Kindle, on their telephone or on paper, um, which will give hints and tips of how to find their way around the city and interesting things to do. The Confraternity also released this year a two-part guide on the Camino Portuguese. It's some, it's becoming more popular every year, and, and, and you were there recently, as you mentioned earlier. What's the appeal of, of those particular routes, the two that you spoke about, other than the, the sound of the Atlantic you know, lapping at your feet as you're walking along? Because <laughs> that sounded pretty good, actually, when you were well, saying that before. Well, that, that will be the third in the series. So we've got guidebooks from Lisbon to Oporto, Oporto to Santiago, and now the Camino Portuguese coastal and seaside routes. Um, so uh, uh, three, three, three guidebooks to the Camino Portuguese. Why is it so popular? Because it's not the Camino Frances. Um, but it's growing in popularity. A few years ago, I don't know, 10, 12,000 people walked the Camino Portuguese. Um, in 2016, 53,000 people um, walked the Camino Portuguese. And these are only the pilgrims that we know we know about because they've arrived in Santiago. There are many others who do it in stages and we, they're not listed as a statistic until they eventually re- re- reach here. Um, the Camino Portuguese is very beautiful. Uh, facilities are, are growing. The, the pilgrim infrastructure is growing and there are variants of it. So there's the, the, the central Camino Portuguese, the coastal Camino Portuguese. Now I've written a guidebook to the seaside route on the Camino Portuguese. And there are other variations. Um, there's a route through Braga, um, described as the, as the Portuguese Vatican City. Very beautiful place. A route from there all the way to Santiago. And that's, that's on a future list. There will be a guidebook to that produced in due course. So I would I would encourage people if they're worried about the, the numbers of pilgrims now over two hundred thousand pilgrims walking the Camino Frances try one of these other routes and the Camino Portuguese is certainly high on that list. There's a guidebook for the Camino the Madrid from Madrid to Sahun. How popular is that route? Yes, <laughs> um, I think last year five hundred pilgrims in the twelve months walked right. are registered as having walked the Camino de Madrid. And it's a very beautiful route. It's a modern route devised by the amigos of the community of Santiago in Madrid. So they sat down and they scratched their heads and they said, there is no medieval route. So medieval pilgrims didn't, you know, there's no, there is no historic route uh, described. But people must have walked from Madrid. So if they did, where would they have gone? And they devised a very beautiful, almost totally no roads route. It's country paths, country lanes, extremely beautiful walking. Um, and of course, you join, you then have the pilgrim experience of not seeing many other pilgrims from Madrid to Sahagun, and then in Sahagun joining the, the, the massive throngs of pilgrims making their way along the Camino Frances. So about a month's walking, two weeks on the Camino de Madrid to Sahagun, and from Sahagun in the centre of the Camino Frances, about two weeks walking into Santiago from there. You released also a guide, and you mentioned earlier the Camino Inglés. It's not as well known, yes. but is, I'm told, a beautiful pilgrimage. I spoke to the Canadian broadcaster Laurie Brown in one of my very first podcasts, and Laurie famously said to me, uh, I, I, walked, I, I walked to get lost to find myself, mm. and, and the Inglés was perfect for that because she said she went days without seeing anybody. Is it still 
is it still, I suppose, not as popular and therefore popular for those potentially looking for a more route of solitude? I'm sure... I'm sure some people will still walk the Camino Inglés and not see any other pilgrims or not many other pilgrims. But there is a consequence to writing guidebooks, Dan. I wrote the guidebook to the Camino Inglés, I don't know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, in, that, in that year, 1,200 pilgrims, only 1,200 pilgrims, walked the, uh, the Camino Inglés from Ferrol to Santiago, five days walking. 118 kilometres. Last year, 12,000 people Whoa. walked the Camino Inglés. More albergues have opened up, more hostels have opened up, and every year it's growing in popularity. I think it's a lovely route. Parts of it are like walking in Scotland or Devon or Ireland. It's very lush. Um, you, horses are grazing, donkeys are tethered, and the crops are growing, and the people are very friendly. It's a route that I would recommend. I'm very, very fond of the Camino Inglés. Because you've only walked five days, are you still entitled to a Compostela? Yes. In 1990, the cathedral, I think it was 1990, 1991, the cathedral introduced a rule that if pilgrims walked a minimum of 100 kilometres to Santiago, uh, they would be or on bicycles 200 kilometres. But if they walked a hun- at least 100 kilometres to Santiago, they would be entitled to be issued with the Compostela. Um, and so the Camino Inglés at 118 kilometres is one of the recognised routes. There's a three-part guide the Confraternity has released. It's three-in-one, as it were, or a package of three that you can buy, how to prepare for Camino Frances, a guidebook for the Camino itself, and then a third is a guide to, is the guide to Santiago that we were talking about before. It's clearly still the most popular route by, by a long stretch. Exactly how many people do you think are walking it? I don't know that there's any way of knowing that, Dan, um, but you're absolutely right. Um, Spanish people walk at weekends or uh, during their week's holiday, European, other European countries. It's very accessible from Italy. The Camino is very accessible from Italy and France. And people come and do short stretches. And when I worked at the Pilgrim's Office, it wasn't unusual for me to meet people who had walked the Camino Frances over five or six or seven years, doing it in little bits at a time. All we know is our own experience. I set out from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port one year on the 11th of November. Um, We were met with um, hail, rain, sleet and snow (laughs) at points. Um, And I remember one day walking to Puente La Reina and I met the usual crowd that I'd been walking with, seven or eight pilgrims. And we got to Puente Lorraine and there were 30 people in the albergue and I had no idea where they'd come from. And I think a lot of them were people setting off and saying, I'll walk a week or um, I'll start here and, and so forth. So people come and go in the Camino all the, all the time. I don't know. Of 250,000 people who, who are registered in Santiago approximately every year on the Camino Frances, four, five, six, seven times that number. Um Walking at any, at any you know, it's impossible to calculate, but it feels like a great number. Yes. And we all, we all share that same experience. It feels like a big number. And then in turn, what we've been talking about throughout the course of this discussion, that continued engagement 
And as you said, when you first looked up on the wall of the den and saw the map, you, you immediately went and started researching so that the people who have walked, people who are planning to walk, people yes. who have still, <laughs> still a way to go. I mean, it's, it's an enormous pilgrim family, isn't it? And, and, and then you and take not, into account all of those different routes. It is an enormous pilgrim family, family isn't it? And, and the growth continues and is not slowing down. So every year between 12 and 15% more come on the Camino than did the previous year. Uh, speaking to people uh, in the pilgrim's office here in Santiago and people who, friends who um, have albergues in and around the city, um, numbers are already up about 20% this year at this point um, compared to last year. So more and more pilgrims are coming um, all the time. A couple of years ago, for the first time ever, there were more foreigners than Spaniards walking the Camino. And I think that trend has continued um, as films are, 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 are made, as books are published, and, and just simply word of mouth, as people talk about their experience to their friends and to, and to others. And of course, the social media is a very powerful uh, Facebook and the Camino Forum and, and so forth are very powerful media for publicising the Camino and sharing the experiences. So I think the growth will continue for a long time yet. There's been a lot of talk lately about the Camino becoming too popular. It's becoming too commercial. I've read now a couple of articles just in the last few weeks about that. Do you share that view, Johnny? Uh, is it, and, and what's being done to preserve its cultural and spiritual significance, do you think? Well, I think one of the one of the beautiful things about it, and also the the downside, is that there is no authority in charge of the Camino. People think that some somewhere there is a headquarters. Um, the, the Camino is divided up into all of these local authority areas throughout Europe, and then in Spain, and it's the local authorities who. Who, 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 who put the waymarks up, who, who fund municipal albergues and so forth, but they're all different and they've all got different priorities within their communities. So I think um, the local authorities are in charge of preserving the heritage. The voluntary sector, like the Confraternity of St. James and other uh, voluntary organisations, the German Confraternity and so forth, um, have donativo albergues to keep the tradition of donativo um, alive. In terms of the commercialisation, I, I say to people, how could it not be so? It was in the Middle Ages, as it was in the Middle Ages, it, it, it is now. There is an industry of the community of Santiago. You cannot have 300,000 people walking to a city, the city of Santiago, along these routes without the private sector, building hotels, building hostels, building facilities, opening bars, opening restaurants, um, running luggage, transportation services, and so forth. And I think we must always remember the comparison with the genesis of the, of the Camino in the Middle Ages, where I think several times more people walked the Camino uh, because the world population was smaller. Um, there were more albergues, more pilgrim hospitals ev than ever there is now. Um, and it was as commercial, if not more commercial. So how could it not be so? And I think as long as at the heart of things we have people who are preserving the documents, the traditions, uh, the waymarking, and the donativo traditions of albergues, um, 
the Camino is is what it is and will continue to grow. And it's, as we've said already a number of times, in the hearts and minds of those who walk largely, isn't it? Yes. Well, well very, very much so. And um, pilgrims themselves will continue to talk about the Camino. Um, you know, there are lots of things we don't know. How many people like you do something like start a podcast or or devise a, a slideshow to show to people in their church or their youth group or, or the local community. And all of that spreads uh, the word about the community of Santiago. And I'm absolutely convinced that will continue. I'm, I want to, if I can, Johnny, ask some nuts and bolts questions, as it were, because there are a lot of people, and indeed I get a lot of emails and messages on social media from people saying thank you for the information from your podcasts because I'm thinking of walking. So I'm going to ask a series of questions here and we'll, we'll see if we can get through them. We're often told not to pack more than 10% of our body weight. Is that about right? Uh, well, I think that's a guideline. Um, my advice to people is to, well, it's the old, the old saying, you know, before you leave on the community, put your rucksack on the bed and put your wallet beside it. Take out half of what you've got in your rucksack and double what you've got in your wallet. And you're guaranteed to have, you're guaranteed to have a good time. Take as little as possible. Spain is not a third world country. You can buy whatever you need on the way. So in terms of, in terms of toiletries, take at the bare minimum. Take one change of clothes. Take a couple of pairs of socks. You do not need four or five pairs of socks because you can wash things. And nowadays, I wouldn't take more than six kilograms um, of stuff. And that, that's counting the weight of my rucksack. So the least, the least possible weight, please. And if that's 10% of your body weight, fine. But the least possible. What could most pilgrims leave behind, do you think? Well, I still take too much stuff, even in that six kilograms. I'm aware in the last couple of weeks when I was walking the Camino Portuguese, there were one or two things that I just didn't use and I could have left at home. Um, so I think it's the tendency is is too too many things. Um, you, you know, predicting predicting eventualities that will that will never. That will, that will never happen. On my first Camino, I get dreadful blisters. Despite all of my preparation, I packed too many things. I took a shortwave radio in case I got lonely and I could listen to the BBC World Service. <laughs> I took a flask. I took I took a thermos flask so that I could I could make tea and have tea in the afternoon. And of course, after a few days, I dumped, I started ditching all of this stuff. Because the weight, the weight was was giving me problems with tendonitis and certainly with blisters, and in many ways, I still see I still see pilgrims. It looks as if they've actually got another pilgrim inside the rucksack. The rucksack's so big, um, but we learn through pain, and um, that's certainly how I learned the lesson of take the least possible weight uh, that you that you can get down to. What's the first thing a pilgrim should pack? Oh, the first thing, <laughs> one of my guidebooks. No, um, but you've got to, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to have. Well, I don't know what you mean. The first thing, um, the, the standard gear is everything's light. It's all got to be lightweight, lightweight top, lightweight rain gear, a sleeping bag, and so forth, and a good rucksack that fits you. Yeah. Go to a shop, 
go to a shop, a reputable supplier, um, go during the week for, so, you, so you're not dealing with weekend staff, talk to people who are experienced walkers themselves, explain what you're going to do. They will all know about the Camino and have your feet measured for boots and have your body measured for a properly fitting rucksack. That's very, very good advice. Now, having done so much research, what would you say is the number one misconception about the Camino, Johnny? Oh, I think um, I think people think it's going to be a stroll in the park, actually. I think a lot of people think... Um, because although the Camino, although in many ways it is simply a series of day walks all joined together, um, it... It requires effort, it requires planning, it requires training, and it is quite a task. If you're walking the Camino Frances, for example, from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port or Rances Valles, it's going to take you a month or so, and that's 30 days of continuous walking, seven or eight hours every day, carrying your rucksack. And I think a lot of people do not understand that there will be pain involved in this, as well as the great joys. Um, so it's not a bed of roses. Well, what about beds? What about bed bugs? Will I get bed no, bugs? Bed bugs. You may very well get bed bugs, but you can take precautions and you can have, you can treat your gear and so forth, and you can ask other pilgrims. Um, bed bugs have always been with us. They've been here since the Middle Ages. They have them in, in the best hotels in New York and Tokyo have, have bed bugs. Um, so take precautions and be aware and look at the beds before you sleep in it. I must tell you, I'm, and I'm touching my head now, touch, touch wood, touch wood in all my Caminos, I have never been affected by bed bugs. There you go. That's a good answer. Is the Camino de Santiago safe? Um, yes. I mean, compared to, compared to uh, downtown New York or London, um, it's extremely safe, and there's very little crime. Um, there's been one murder in recent years of a pilgrim being murdered uh, by a local person on the Camino Frances, and that's and that's a huge tragedy, but it's a very, very, very rare event. Um, we Our experience is that pilgrims should behave as they would behave at home. So look after your stuff. Take your valuables with you, even into the shower, in the albergues and women in particular um, are concerned about their vulnerability if they're walking on their own take your mobile phone um, have the emergency number 112 uh, programmed into it the operators will speak in english to you if you if you if you require that and just be aware be alert and do not think that the camino because it's it's so beautiful and such a great experience is crime free it's not crime-free, and there are bad people around the Camino as there are in every other walk of life. So, do, so you know, do, do not abandon common sense simply because you're on a pilgrimage. Do you get enough sleep in albergues? Um, well, I must confess, I, I, tend to, I tend to use albergues in the wintertime when there aren't very many right. other people around. Yeah. The experience, yes. Of course, sleep is disturbed because there are other people and there are people who snore and there are people who get up from the toilet and there are people who who rustle plastic bags in the middle of the night and you want to 
get up and murder them there and then because they keep waking everybody up. But eventually, Dan, and you know this yourself, the tiredness takes over, and um, you could you could you could you could sleep through a revolution going on around <laughs> you eventually because of of physical tiredness. So um, I think people do have problems sleeping in the beginning. Uh, most people get into the routine of being able to sleep in a dormitory with others. Um, without any problem after after a few days. Now, are, are the locals happy, Johnny? Are the Spanish happy to see pilgrims walking through their villages? Um, I think different people have different experiences. I think people engaged in the... Spanish people engaged in the economy of the, the Camino, so providing beds or, or cafes or bars or so forth, are very happy that pilgrims um, are going through... Um, our pilgrim behaviour is not always what it should be. Mm. Um, pe- people stealing fruit and walking across farmers' fields and littering the place and, and so forth. And um, it's good to see organisations like the Confraternity and many other pilgrim organisations actively campaigning and asking asking pilgrims to obey what we would call the country code. So close gates, don't litter. Uh, and be nice to people and treat people, treat the Camino as as if it was your home and how you would want how you would want your own things and your own place to be treated. But I've no doubt um, after after what what are we talking about six hundred years of the Camino, people are people are well accustomed to pilgrims walking through their villages. That, I've never thought of it like that. I suppose. It, what happens if you arrive in a town and, and, and all the albergues are full and, and you know, well, the next town, 10, 12 k's or even 3 k's down the, the road is going to be full as well? What happens? What, what, what are the alternatives? Well, I've never met anybody who didn't get a bed. And what you, what you need to do is go into a bar or a cafe and ask if there are any beds, does anybody have rooms? Would anybody help? Um, or go to the local church and ask. Um, that first winter, um, I was on the Via de la Plata. I'm, I'm searching my mind to try and remember exact the exact place it was. It was just before Salamanca. I walked into a little village and the albergue had a huge sign up, closed for... Um, for obras, for work. So there was building work going on. The, the albergue was closed. So I went to the local hostel and it had a sign up closed for the winter months and I had no other alternative. So I went into a bar and I was starving and they gave me they gave me some food. And I said to the barman, I remember I'm writing, I was writing all of this down out of my phrase book. Yeah. Um, other, and does anybody do any rooms? And he shook his head and he said, you know, the albergue's closed for, and the hostel's closed. And another woman turned and said, you can stay with my granny. And she phoned her grandmother. And sure enough, they deposited me at the granny's house. And there I went in and there was a lovely bed. And I spent the night there and had a cup of coffee with her in the morning. And recently I was back in that route and they've now opened their own albergue. And who's running the albergue but the woman and her granny. 
Oh, I have fantastic. I met, I met the I met the grandmother that I, that I, whose house I'd stayed in ten years before. So another of these Camino co- coincidences. So if there are no beds, apparently, ask around, and you may have to get a taxi to the next place or a taxi off of the Camino to where there is a hostel or a hotel and come back the next day. But there are always solutions to these problems. If an international pilgrim falls ill, can you see a Spanish doctor? Um, Yes, you can. And the emergency services will will look after you. People should have adequate um, travel insurance and health insurance in place. Yeah. European citizens should carry a European health card, which is the reciprocal arrangement between the European countries. So travel insurance, European health card, and um, Spanish health authorities will be very happy to provide emergency treatment for pilgrims on all of the Camino routes. I was telling somebody at the weekend that I hoped to talk to you during the week, and and she said to me, Dan, can you please ask Johnny, because he might know, will pilgrims ever again be able to place their hands on the pillar featuring St. James in the entry to the cathedral in Santiago? The strongest rumour is no, that they won't be able to. But I was talking to somebody the other day who said for the whole year in 2021, they may do something. So there may be a facsimile or they may protect it with a fibreglass hand or something but the strong the strongest rumors i've heard heard from the conservationists is that it won't reopen but who knows so who knows don't ask me to unravel the the mysterious minds of the the canons of the cathedral i wouldn't dare i wouldn't dare but she then also asked when do when do would you know or does anybody know when those renovations will be complete indeed when the scaffolding will come down from the from the facade well, in the square I saw, I saw I saw yesterday more scaffolding was down on the uh, on the south tower so the, the north tower has been completed for some time and the scaffolding's half down and I saw on the south tower the scaffold some scaffolding was coming down um, they say certainly by 2021 the next holy year, all of the work should be complete. The cathedral got a grant of 16 million euros within the last year to get ahead with the work. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, let's hope soon because it's very beautiful. Yes. And from there, the pilgrim arrives in the square and and that magnificent uh, cathedral bearing down on them. And one of the first things that they they seek to do is to collect their pilgrim's passport. A wonderful tradition and a wonderful memento. Is it still as important in 2017 as it always has been, Johnny? Oh, taking your pilgrim credential to the pilgrim's office to get the Compostela yes. with your name written in Latin um, is is as popular now as it, as it was. And, well... It's just the, it's one of the it's one of the pilgrim rituals that pilgrims do. They they've been collecting stamps in their pilgrim passport uh, all the way up through their journey, whether long or short, and they want the final stamp um, to show the journey's completed, and that's the stamp of the Cathedral of Santiago, which is issued at the pilgrim's office, and then they issue the traditional um, certificate, the Compostela, or or a, or another certificate. Uh, welcoming you to the city. The Compostela is issued for people who have 
who've, who have walked, who've made the pilgrimage for religious or spiritual reasons, however you want to self-define spiritual. And there's another certificate um, which looks exactly like the Compostela, also in Latin, issued to people who have walked for other reasons, for sporting or cultural reasons. Um, so every day, the, the Pilgrim's Office has a website. The other day, 1,400 pilgrims arrived and registered and received their Compostela. So it's still very much the thing to do um, on arrival in Santiago. And can you get... Well, I actually met a, a German fellow who'd walked 15 times the Camino Frances and 14 of those times he walked for somebody else. When I was a little boy, uh, my mother used to say, offer up your, your prayers. And we would offer up our prayers for somebody who was in need and, and in a sense praying for somebody. And Alfred, this gentleman, said, I offer up my Camino. I, I walk for somebody else. And he told me that you can get the Compostela in someone else's name. How do I go about that? And, and, and is that very common? Um, well, yes, it is. And um, the, the Compostela is personal to you, Dan. So, so your name is going to go on the Compostela. But then underneath, in, the, in a space in the certificate, the Pilgrim's Office can write on behalf of ah. and then the name of the person um, that you're dedicating your pilgrimage to. Usually it would be somebody who has died or somebody who through illness is unable to make the pilgrimage themselves. But the, the Pilgrim's Office are more or less flexible about these things. So talk to them on your arrival, explain to them that you want a dedication um, and, and and they will write that on the certificate. One piece of advice for for people who are who are thinking of, of walking, what's the one thing you would say to them? Um, always take the least amount of gear that you can, prepare in advance and do some training and thoroughly enjoy yourself. Embrace the Camino. Just throw yourself into it and start walking and everything will be fine. I'm reminded of a quote. And I really, I, Sorry. I really, really believe that. Just get started and all will, it, it will just take over and take on its own momentum and its own life. I'm reminded of a quote I read during the week from the US writer and comic Stephen Wright. He said, everywhere is walking distance if you have the time. Exactly. Poco a poco, as the Spaniards say, a little bit at a time. Dan, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Johnny. Lovely to talk to you. And you've been so generous with your time. And, and Godspeed. Buon Camino. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye now. My guest this week, the blogger, writer, musician, administrator, and pilgrim, Johnny Walker. You can buy the Confraternity of St. James guidebooks at Amazon, and you can find out about what they do. And the website is an outstanding resource for pilgrims and future pilgrims, csj.org.uk. I can personally recommend the British Afternoon Tea in Rabanel. I'm Dan Mullins. Until next week, Buen Camino. Buen Camino.